Well, thank you, uh, and welcome everyone to a, another episode for the Geopolitical Pivot. My name is Samaj McDowell, your host, and with me is another young practitioner by the name of Alexander. Alexander, are you there with us? Yep. All righty. Well, thank you for taking about 30 minutes of your time to come here. Um, so first and foremost, so what I like to do uh, with people um, that are coming to the podcast is allow them to kind of talk about their background a little bit um, so that um, we can kind of get an understanding of what your area of growing expertise is. So, you know, the floor is yours. You let us know about your academic background, which you hopefully aim to achieve uh, professionally and where you see yourself going in the future. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Alex Isabellum. Uh, I am a recent graduate from George Mason University uh, with a degree in global affairs. Um, originally, I'm a transfer student from Northern Virginia Community College, where I studied engineering and political science. Um, overall, I believe that... Um, and I'm studying specifically security, national uh, interest, and basically the next future warfare, as well as grand strategy. Uh, furthermore, I kind of have an interest in, in um, great power competition, uh, how that basically plays into the dynamics of um, the next uh, conflicts and how is that can be managed for the benefit of the United States. Um, overall, I right now trying to find a job working for um, a think tank. I believe that my background in uh, informational management uh, would actually be very beneficial, as as well as um, it, it, basically I would be able to teach other people how to do all of these things. Nice, nice, nice. Um, well, I'm glad to have you on the geopolitical pivot. Uh, so today, I know in your background, uh, when we were talking, uh, you brought up the notions of psychoinformational campaigns. And when I look at that, I'm like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> um, but looking more into it, uh, rather than me um, do a little spiel on what exactly psychoinformational campaigns um Primarily, when talking about new technologies, uh, from your perspective and your point of view, uh, what do you see, or well, how do you see um, information campaigns, uh, or at least information warfare, and then de dealing with psychological operations uh, with the expansion of mass media and uh, social media platforms and information technology capabilities. Where, what do you see that coming into play in 21st century? So, um, when most people think of informational warfare, they typically uh, have very uh, older, I guess, viewpoint on this. Uh, they typically think of dropping leaflets in the occupied cities of Nazi Germany and stuff like that to get either uh, soldiers to uh, surrender or the population to rise up and uh, fight alongside the Allies. Um, alternatively, they might think of it as purely just throwing information for example, like uh, Radio Free Europe uh, broadcasting to the other side of the um, Iron Curtain. Mm -hmm. um, those kind of like the background of 
uh, the informational warfare, but those are primarily military needs. Uh, and they have very specific tactical um, outcomes to that. Like obviously um, leaflets would reduce the number of people fighting against uh, allies and obviously um, Radio Free Europe would entice some sort of revolt in the uh, captive nations. Um, while th this is still kind of part of the political warfare, psychoinformational campaigns tend to be uh, much more longer. They tend to uh, revolve uh, around getting people to do stuff and limiting the responses. Hence, it's both to inform and to psychologically manipulate mm -hmm. a response. Okay. Um, so, would you... That also kind of reminds me of, like, for example, um, I think one of the great powers now, I know your background is great power politics, mine is much more, I guess, not just great power politics, but also we're looking at uh, non-state actors. Uh, would you say that now if we're looking at 21st century, looking at, uh, for example, I guess ISIS uh, starting in 2014, where their whole, their social media uh, marketing campaigns, not just for recruiting foreign jihadists, um, but also to kind of appear bigger than what they actually are to kind of change the type of responses the United States or any type of U.S. ally may take to uh, to go against, I guess, the Islamic State. Would that be part of, um, as you're talking about, psycho-information campaigns um, done by non-state actors? Most definitely. Uh, one of the important things that ISIS was kind of... Um, I guess they, they really, like, I mean, every single um, terrorist organization kind of brings something new to the table that sets them apart from everyone else. But one of the things that ISIS was kind of really uh, improving upon is social media presence. Mm -hmm. They had very uh, intricate web of these um, radicalizations without direct contact. Mm -hmm. So you would have these lone wolf attacks um for example, in Britain and uh, in France, that were really difficult to track, and nobody really knew, like, what's the, um, how, how did this actually happen? Like, what mm -hmm. was the process, and how was the information that was available in plain sight right. was used to basically radicalize all these people? Mm -hmm. um, no, yeah, you make a a good point. Um, where there's a book, actually, um, I can't find the, the book, but essentially, um, is this, it was kind of talking about, shedding light to what you were just talking about, how non-state actors are essentially learning procedures and operations, conventional, non-conventional, from these great power um, countries such as you know, Russia and China and Iran to how to do these type of psychological warfare. Um, operations at the same time great powers are learning as well on the flip side from the islamic state from al-qaeda from al-shabaab on how to effect effectively initiate these types of operations against the united states um in multiple avenues where our policy may be rather uh blindsided and not as progressive as they should be in relation to 21st century uh national security so then when, when we're talking about great power politics and um, psychoinformational campaigns, 
um, when we're looking at the great powers, China, Russia, and Iran, are there any current examples, I guess, of any one of those countries, or even, I guess you can say, North Korea, um, all their entire news media essentially being um, a media marketing campaign for propaganda usages. Um, are there any examples of currently in the 21st century on these usage of psycho information campaigns and great power politics? Um, it kind of depends as to what you like. There is no direct psycho informational campaign that's mm -hmm. apart from a grander strategy. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, in, for North Korea and uh, South Korea, a very big South Korean um, response is usually in terms of uh, splitting the United States and South Korea apart. Mm -hmm. And this is something that China is interested in as well. Mm -hmm. So for North Korea, if they actually uh, attempt to launch any kind of military campaign against South Korea, limiting the American response would be paramount to their success. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of uh, stories, for example, that are not directly in South Korea, but are being sold as an equivocal informational psychological um, narrative mm -hmm. that would benefit them. For example, uh, a lot of um, stories centered around how uh, the United States servicemen uh, assault uh, Japanese women in Okinawa. Mm -hmm. Those stories are getting massive boosts in areas with American military bases, but not directly in Okinawa. Mm -hmm. And things like that are only going to increase in order to basically lower the response. Mm. Okay. Um, I guess we could also say the same thing as far as um, with Iran, for example, um, how for when we had assassinated Qasem Soleimani, um, there were actually, interestingly enough, um, Americans, American populations, uh, well, portions of our of our population that actually condemned uh, the the killing of Qasem Soleimani and Iran utilized this essentially um, in a in a multi pronged media I guess as you said a um, informational campaign to disavow uh, the American government um, doing i guess through these procedures um if we're looking at the psyche i guess would you say i guess the goal of the psychoinformational campaign is to warrant i guess the creation of domestic instability to then thwart any type of policy making um but then i guess we also have to look into consideration or keep into consideration the type of government that we're talking about um for in the democracy, especially in the United States, a lot of our politicians they bank on the, what the public views as, I guess, appropriate or not appropriate in regards to policy, especially foreign policy. Um, and if we're looking at great power politics in Russia, Russia's been doing this in the United States since the 1940s, um, especially when it came to race relations. Um, why, but why would a great power seek to utilize these uh, psychological information campaigns, knowing 
that it's a possible risk that if they're caught, there'll be consequences um, for this. Well, uh, uniquely to uh, great power competition, um, most of them do not think of it as something that um, would require a substantive um, response. Mm -hmm. For example, like you can say, well, Iran has been making these um, stories on um, American newspapers that would shed, uh, would put Iran in a much safer and better light. Um, they were caught doing that, but there was no repercussions as to um, like their behavior would change in terms of like, well, they caught, so what? Mm -hmm. uh, and that kind of goes back to the fact that in cyber warfare, it's very um, complicated even to do attribution, not right. only compellence mm -hmm. to the uh, like uh, to the prevention of this from happening. Right. So all like cyber informational campaigns are typically rely on the very uh, persistent engagement grand strategy of cyber warfare. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of sets them apart from the rest of them because they are both an attack mechanism, a defense mechanism, and basically a PR management for a superpower. Mm -hmm. So should this then should this then be widely accepted, this possibility of cyber information campaigns, should it be widely accepted as, um, uh, how can I say this, um, as kind of like part of the territory for the growth of information technology, the internet, mass media pro, uh, platforms? Like now that a lot of these countries are looking to dominate information technology, primarily, you know, China and then. Russia already indicating their capabilities and continual growing capabilities in this type of field of hybrid warfare. Uh, should the populace um, should just, I guess, accept the fact that this is just part of the territory that we have to accept and endure, not just from a cyber warfare type of deal, but also psycho information campaigns, including disinformation, misinformation, uh, as and I guess accepting the fact that we are essentially pawns in a grander, grand politics game in this international political community? Uh, in a sense, probably not, especially in terms of um, how the civilian population might react to it. Mm -hmm. Because, um, for example, as, as you pointed out uh, earlier, uh, politicians and democracies usually more tuned to the public opinion rather than compared to authoritarian states. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that regard, democracies are much more vulnerable to this sort of campaigns mm -hmm. because you can shift public opinion fairly quickly. Uh, politicians have to adjust and policy have to be made. Um, and due to that, I think it is paramount to actually either design some sort of counter narrative that mm -hmm. would actually uh prevent that from happening or managing as part of like public diplomacy mm -hmm. okay um and now that you brought up public diplomacy um would well can information campaigns like this be utilized for public 
public uh, diplomacy, especially if it's like an operation to appeal to uh, the public to apply pressure onto a government, let's say if uh, our case study is a, a democracy such as the United States, where if Russia does not like a particular um, policy avenue that the federal government is going by, and in order to tie the uh, the hands of the federal government, let's implement misinformation and disinformation campaigns to to implement mistrust within the democratic systems in the United States, which is something we've already been seeing growing um, on both sides of not it's not just on the Republican side, but also on the Democratic side, where is so when one way or another we have become very vulnerable to a nuance of misinformation, disinformation to the point where we don't even fact check it really. Um, let alone um, looking at who you know who created the information that we're reading and consuming as a general audience. Is this a problem if we're just taking the information for granted, but then as we continue to see particular information or at least rather misleading information that's that's constructed and dispersed by great powers to distract you know the United States or weaken U.S. national security is how can the United States combat that if at the end of the day the disinformation or information campaign does not directly does not direct it to the government directly but it's to American consumer culture so uh, I think the biggest thing is the uh, American consumers need to be much more aware of how these this, things happen, mm -hmm. how this, um, how these technologies basically impacting our lives. But there is not much in terms of policy or um, informational technologies or technical standpoints mm. that you can actually really do anything about this. And that's kind of brings me to a point of um, earlier when I said that uh, it's really difficult to do like at not only attribution, but compellence, mm -hmm. like don't do this. And that's kind of have to do with the concept of post-truth where uh, multiple sides of the truth can coexist within the same reality. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly difficult to um dislodge from cyber standpoint mm -hmm. because that where it lives it basically uh creates its own uh strategic holdouts mm -hmm. for all of these narratives and it's incredibly difficult to remove them at best uh you can manage them with a counter narrative mm -hmm. but again you have to be very adept at understanding what great powers are doing how are they doing it and how like what are their goals with this mm -hmm. campaign no yeah that, that makes sense i think also to add to your point uh in order to if the united states wants to do a counter narrative they also need to understand the the culture or the political institutions of the adversary that's implementing the information campaign um especially then for example you know you may hear uh, countless information campaigns from Iran indicating, oh, you know, the United States, it's such a horrible place because unfortunately, um, the United States possesses the most people, um, in prison. However, at the same time, Iran neglects, intentionally neglects and ignores the fact that quite frankly, they hang people that they believe to be gay, uh, from cranes. Um, and 
or if we're talking about disinformation from Saudi Arabia, they talk about how we do certain things in our criminal justice um, history. However, Saudi Arabia still decapitates people um, in the middle of their capital, even though they're against corporal punishment or capital punishment. Um, with these types of, I guess, backgrounds, um, do, do you think that the United States um, could viably, if we had the right politicians, or not just politicians, but the right thinking and pragmatism in mind and looking at national security, uh, we've done it before um, in the Cold War, um, as you talked about, um, with um, Radio Free Europe um, and other things that we utilize to get information on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Um, however, what's the problem now, I guess, for the United States? Um, we have the capacity, we have the technology to do it, we have a good wherewithal and understanding of what's, mis what's misinformation and what's not misinformation. What... Why is it that it seems that the United States, we're so far behind in comprehending the true nature of the 21st century? Are we much more idealistic or ideologically stunted in our Cold War mentality um, as we hear this notions of communism here and there? Or are we, is there hope that we can get to a point where we finally, I guess, wake up to understanding the new uh, security vulnerabilities to our national security and take it much more seriously in a much more modern stance and protocol? Uh, I think all of the above cases are definitely important as to like how did we lose, lose our way of already doing this from the Cold War. But I think a lot has to do with um, not understanding how to approach cyber warfare. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do with uh, miscalculation in terms of the very basic level. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you've said that, well, we need to counter Iranian misinformation with basically the same narrative, just flipped. But I don't think that's the exact way to go about it. Mm -hmm. What you do is uh, you have, an, if, if they have a narrative, you have to counter, but you don't counter it directly. You mm -hmm. go you will flank it and go from from the sides. Mm -hmm. For example, one of the um, great uh, campaigns during um, the war with ISIS uh, is "Gay for ISIS" hashtag mm -hmm. that was launched by uh, gay activists in the United States, mm -hmm. and all of it is flooded uh, ISIS videos, pictures of gay men kissing. <laughs> and that was very successful far more successful than anything that DOD or the State Department can come up with mm -hmm. it basically they drawed out the hashtags that had been used by ISIS terrorists right. and stuff like that and this understanding of a really um, uh, non-kinetic measures mm -hmm. to these problems that are not direct uh, and this is something that we will need to basically cope with and understand and uh, realize that there is a lot of costs involved if we do absolutely nothing. Interesting. Um, no, that's a good point. So then I guess so you think that um, to combat, I guess, information warfare, it doesn't have to necessarily rely on actions by the federal government, um, depending on... Um, 
activist interests and groups, um, as you use the ISIS example, that people, citizens, everyday citizens that have keen uh, political oriented interests, they too can also take initiatives to at least somewhat combat the the extensive influences or at least the aftermath and outcomes of these types of psychological warfare operations. Yeah, and one of the greatest things about the internet and cyber warfare in general is that it doesn't have really a mass equivalent as it is in warfare. Mm. Um, for example, like if one army has a million men and the other has two million men, one's greater than the other. Mm. But every single person in terms of cyber warfare, they can fight. Right. And that's kind of the, the, the biggest I guess, problem with this is if you interact with the internet in any sort of way, chances are you either uh, being part participant of these campaigns mm -hmm. or you're basically consumer of these campaigns. And uh, you kind of have to realize like, well, how much of the information that I'm consuming is actually designed to shift my view on the subject? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Oh, that makes sense. Um, I mean, that in itself is, um, you can look at the, the U.S. 2016 presidential elections on that, um, or even the 2018 midterm elections, um, as far as, well, were you contributing to the, the misinformation and disinformation campaigns, um, or were you the direct targeted consumer of the, the psychological warfare um, operations at hand to undermine U.S. democratic institutions? Um and elections for the interest of um, great uh, our adversarial great powers, um, but with that, you know, that, I think that's actually a pretty good uh, way to this end uh, this podcast episode, and then we can definitely pick up here um, to talk more specifically um, on a specific great powers um especially russia i think russia's will be an interesting one to talk about because you know russia's always been keen on utilizing these types of information campaigns um going back to the early onset of the cold war um more so on as i mean kind of same way because back then for them it was what well, the best way to undermine the united states was during to provoke a race war um, so the Soviet Union had supported the Black Panther Party with the hope that they would instigate a race war um, to essentially split the United States. Uh, a lot of people tried to essentially tried to you know put two and two together with well, what we're currently enduring um, in the United States. But I think the impact of Russian disinformation campaigns is something that we should kind of really talk about um, campaigning before Putin and then after Putin to kind of see the the similarities or at least the increasing in capabilities since the United States is not the only country that's the the direct target of Russian um, psychological information campaigns. But um, with that, you know, Alex, I thank you for taking or allowing me to take 30 minutes of your time to talk about this podcast and we'll definitely do um, a second episode to this. I think it's really fascinating and I'm definitely learning more about psychological operations. Thank you so much. No, oh, thank you. Um, with that, I hope you have a good day, and then we'll talk soon. Have a good day. Thank you. Right.